This episode of Rewind of the Living Dead is brought to you by nightchannels.com, the only place on the internet to get that darker side for your t-shirts and hoodies. These are amazing, unique t-shirts and hoodie designs for occult, music, literature, and films. Of course, they got loads of amazing horror t-shirts. There's this Texas Chainsaw one that you gotta have. They got Alien, but they also got these deep cuts like Begotten. You know Begotten, right? Because you're a hardcore horror fan like I am, or Guinea Pig. It's like that across the entire site for their music, for the anime, for other kind of media categories. Such cool designs that you're not going to find anywhere else. Go on there. There's no way you're not going to get a t-shirt or hoodie. I guarantee you. Tons of color options. The t-shirts have two fabric options. Classic 90s style, which is Gildan, or that great modern combed cotton Bella option. And the best part about all this, these are one of a kind designs, and all of it has really great competitive prices. In fact, if you go there right now and you enter the code rewind at checkout, you get 13% off. That's right, 13% off at checkout if you let them know that Rewind of the Living Dead sent you. Uh, so when you're at the next convention or concert and someone asks, where'd you get that shirt? The only answer is at nightchannels.com. And be sure to visit them on Instagram at nightchannels as well. Um, that's N-I-G-H-T channels.com. Uh, and be sure at checkout to enter the code rewind to get your 13% off. Rewind of the Living Dead is a review show, so spoilers are ahead. When Kevin Williamson was originally writing a script he called Scary Movie, he was so nervous about handing it over that he immediately began pinning the opening scene to a potential sequel. After sending those pages over to his agent, the idea struck them that they were no longer just selling a script to a studio, they were introducing them to a franchise. The film eventually became Scream, and after a massive opening weekend in theaters, Miramax executives were frothing at the mouth for a sequel. Because there was so much mystery surrounding the identity of the killers in the first film, Williamson knew he had to be extra secretive for a sequel, so he wrote multiple endings and even had his assistant write a dummy script that got leaked, with Dewey as the killer. Williamson's worst nightmares came true when the real script actually did get leaked, but by then the dummy version had made the rounds and nobody believed the second one was actually legit. At that point, it was just a time crunch with production, because the studio wanted to release the sequel less than one year after the original hit theaters. The follow-up centered around Sidney Prescott heading off to college in Ohio, but soon the past comes back to haunt her when a copycat ghostface starts murdering people around her. Hello, Sidney. What do you want? It's time, girlfriend. Someone is taking their love of sequels one step too far. Hi, Gail Weathers, author of The Woodsboro Murders. She's an opportunist. Be kind, she saved our lives. Yeah, I know, I read all about it in the book. Can't wait to see the movie. Scream 2, Reddit R. What's your favorite scary movie? Showgirls. In the latest episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we're going to talk about the rules of the sequel and make sure the body count is higher as we review Scream 2. And I'm Patrick Guerra. And Patrick, as we get ready and gear up for the release of Scream 6, it's a bit of a tradition here because when Scream 5 came out, 
last year, feels like a lifetime ago, but it was actually just a little over a year ago, we actually released our first review for the original Scream. Then we did, of course, Scream 5, which inexplicably was called Scream, not with a number next to it, but whatever. (laughs) They've rectified that now, and they're doing Scream 6 as the new film coming out. Of course, we will be reviewing that next week. So, as a bit of a tradition, we are now reviewing the sequel to the original Scream, Scream 2. Here we go, Scream 2. I'm all fired up. And for our YouTube listeners, if I look more haggard than I normally do, (laughs) it's because I've been on three different continents in the first three months of this year. Uh, But I'm so happy to be here and to be able to talk about Scream 2 really like a franchise i know the 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 story is legendary now on this podcast scream got you back into horror yeah scream got you back on the on the horse scream kind of missed me i actually saw the first scream at home i saw it on uh, home videos at home with my girlfriend and we watched it there so i never even saw the theaters i I wasn't even like engaged in it so i'm kind of it's almost kind of like what we did with um nightmare on elm street where i'm sort of like like reorienting uh, myself to this franchise. I've seen the movies kind of in passing. I, I've, I've never like really invested myself in them. So this is my first time really sitting down with Scream 2. I've seen parts of it. Parts of it were very familiar. A part uh, The story was like completely new to me. Like I, I could not remember the story for the life of me. So this is kind of like, for me, like kind of watching it for the first time. In a way, I'm, I'm actually really happy about that, to be honest with you, because... Um, Scream has been part of my fandom and even more so in a lot of ways than Nightmare on Elm Street because I was, I mean, I do remember seeing some of the original Nightmare on Elm Streets in theaters, but I was still too young. I, I was, did not see the original right. one uh, in theaters. You know what I mean? Like I, I was way too young for that. Um, even though I went and saw other ones when I was still way too young, but Scream, I was there from the beginning. Like I saw Scream in the theater, yeah. I think on the second week of release, everyone was buzzing about it. I went and saw it, and as you just said, it reignited my love of horror. I grew up loving horror and then just kind of got away from it for a few years, and then Scream comes out, and boom, I am way into it again, and I've been into it ever since. Um, That was also at that point in time where the internet was really starting to blow up. Like, the internet became what the internet is more. Obviously, it's far more today, but at the time, it started, you had message boards, and you had, you know, people, you know, actually doing, you know, scream sites, you know, talking about the killers. And then, you know, everything changed in movie making, really, at that time period, 95, 96, because... The mystery started disappearing. We would get spoilers, which you didn't let you do. Only you got spoilers back in the days if you hung out with a friend who saw the movie and they are an asshole and told you about what happened. But like in this day and age, you go on Twitter, you go on Facebook, you go on Instagram and you get spoilers and you're like, oh, my God, piss me off. This was the time when that really started was in that era. And the original Scream had such a built in mystery to it when the killers are revealed which was again it's a horror film but it was also a mystery right like you didn't know who they were until the very end and boy that twist in the original scream still stands as in my opinion one of the two or three greatest twists in movie history i mean i love that twist it's such a great way to reveal the killers so from then on out every scream since then has been a guessing game of who are the killers you know we all and i mean they're doing it right now for scream six um but it actually bit them in the ass because the scripts got leaked and there's all the, that was really when like now you hear, I know, you know, this story, but for the, for the listeners out there, like a lot of TV shows and movies now, 
they will give their actors copies of the script on dark colored paper so it can't be color copied you can't put like a xerox machine and copy it they have scripts that have people's names all over them like big giant bold letters mm-hmm. all over them so if a script leaks they know where it came from um some productions won't let actors read beyond going into the studio and actually reading the script and leaving it there. Mm-hmm. So there's all these precautions to protect the story. I know game of Thrones did it. I know, uh, breaking bad did it like a lot of big shows and movies, of course, do it. Uh, when you're you know, talking about like, you know, the, the big Marvel movies, whatever. Um, but it really started in a lot of ways with Scream 2 because that was the fascination of this film was who were the killers and people went nuts not only trying to figure it out but actually literally trying to spoil actively spoil the movie. I, I think that's what's really fun about the Scream series was the engagement. Um, and, and I've and and since since we've started this podcast, I've met a lot of new horror fans or not new horror fans, but horror fans that are new to myself who grew up like you, who just were like embedded with scream from the time it came out, it created its own kind of universe. Like this was, this was the first cinematic universe that people were like really obsessed with. And like you said, used the internet to kind of fill in the blanks and figure out what was happening. It's really cool. And I'm kind of jealous that I wasn't a part of it. Because as a horror fan now, uh, you know, I've, I've been a lifelong horror fan, but to be as as dedicated as I am to it now, I I wish that there was a brand new franchise out there that I could do that with. Now, there there kind of is they're building some at the moment, but that 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 whirlwind, that that obsessiveness. And we're talking to Scream 2 is 1997. The first one came out in 95, 96, 96. Yeah. Yeah, 96. So you're talking about it's like right afterwards, you get Scream 2 right away. The fan base is still rabid. They're still there. It really reminds me of like what what we see in the opening of the movie, which is it's a great cold open with uh, Jada Pinkett and Omar Epps going to see Stab, right? The movie based on the, the actual Woodsboro murders. And there's this raucous crowd there. And, and everybody's dressed up like Ghostface or handing out Ghostface things. I go, that's the kind of fan engagement I wish I had. You know, I, at that time when Scream was blowing up everywhere and people were talking about Sydney and Dewey and Gale and all the rest of the cast and being really embedded in it, I was kind of off in some other world. I don't know what the hell I was doing during that time, but I wasn't focused on on horror it's cool that there is a whole generation of people who like came up with it and and are still like just as obsessed with it it'd be, it'd be kind of be like the people who came up with friday the 13th or nightmare on elm street from day one those people have a different story they have a different way of talking about those films they kind of grew up with them and i don't have that so that's it's a really cool thing overall um you know you're you're the scream guy here well you know i'll defer to you when scream 2 comes out does it live up to your expectations does it exceed them does it disappoint what was that initial like i you it's damon martin it's friday night you got the bag of popcorn you stand outside because i know back in the day you didn't get to sign seating or anything oh yeah buy your ticket and wait for two hours before you got into the theater to get a good seat so what was it like when you finally got to see scream 2 you know, I loved it. I, I, and because it kept so much of the tone from the first film carried over into the second film, it did it, it again. It felt like a genuine sequel and they did everything right. Kevin Williamson was back as the writer. Wes Craven was back as a director. You know, one thing that I think a lot of horror fans from the eighties will understand this pain is that 
horror movies back then, the franchises got churned out like, you know, like printing presses. They were just, you know, getting them out there as quickly as possible and not really putting a whole lot of work into them. They were just using them as cash cows. They were putting them out there cheap, fast, and 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 there was no continuity. You didn't have the same actors coming back, different writers. Rarely did you get the same director. Uh, you know, it was just, again, you had you you, you had your cast that, that, that involved Freddy Krueger or you had your cast that involved Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers. You know, any continuity at all, you know, was was a, a shocking moment. Like Daniel Harris actually appearing in two Halloween films, or uh, you know, bringing back part of the cast from Nightmare on Elm Street three to four. Even then, they still lost somebody. They lost Patricia Arquette. Um, the continuity and and the film and Scream to Scream two feels it feels genuinely like one to the next. And yeah. Real quick, I want to mention you talk about the fandom of that time period. You know, one of the reasons why, as much as I always call Nightmare on Elm Street my favorite franchise, in a weird way, like I always feel like I need to call Scream my favorite franchise because I was old enough to appreciate it more at that point. I was a teenager when it came out, so I I, I appreciated the first one much more. And you're right, like I always got to be excited when a new Scream was coming out. Like I, you know, I was old enough at that point to be able to just take myself to the movies or whatever, and I just loved it. So you're right, like I'm lucky in that way, and in a weird way, like I, you know, probably is, you know, more, it's a more, um, attached franchise for me than even Nightmare on Elm Street. Cause I wasn't old enough, you know, at that point, even, even the ones I saw in the theater, I was still a kid. Like I don't yeah, really you vi- discovering yeah, the I don't, franchise. I don't vividly remember. Yeah. I don't vividly remember my Nightmare on Elm Street theater experiences. I vividly remember my scream experiences. Um, so scream two is great. You know, the cast of the new people who came in. And at that point, you know, like I said, we're talking about high school, college age where we were, um, at the time when it came out. I remember relating to the characters because I was of that age. I was around that age. You know what I mean? So I enjoy. So yeah, I, I loved it. The tone was great. Once again, they, they killed it with the mystery aspect, you know, and again, by the way, the film's over 25 years old. We're not saving spoilers here, folks. If you haven't seen Scream 2 at this point, then I don't know what you're doing. But, <laughs> like, the big revelation of Mrs. Loomis, like, it was a cool twist. Like, oh, yeah, we, yeah. we heard his mom left in the first film. Her, his dad was cheating on her, and that really is what ignited Billy Loomis to become a killer, like his mom abandoning him. It would make sense that the Looney Tune genes would come from mom <laughs> and mom comes back in the second one. And uh, it's just it was it was really good. Like, I remember genuinely liking it. And I would honestly say over time, I've liked it more as I rewatch it and kind of pick it apart. And, you know, it's 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 a it's a, a, a bit more grown of a film. You know, it kind of advances the the narrative a little bit. And, uh, yeah, I remember loving it at the time and I still love it to this day. And we, we talked about this when we talked about uh, the original Scream and Scream 5. Um, what Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven did is they corrected a real big problem with the original slasher franchises. Um, some might argue outside of Halloween, but everything else, you really give a shit about the characters. And not just the one character, because even with Halloween, it's like, okay, we're following Laurie Strode, but it's kind of just Laurie Strode that you really care about. Laurie Strode, Michael Myers. In Scream, you care about this ensemble. And I compared it, I think, to like watching like a like a teen drama, basically, like on television. The Scream franchise as a movie franchise treats itself like a TV franchise. You we're gonna bring back a cast of characters every season. We're gonna grow with them every time out. You're gonna you're gonna see them in new situations. They've grown a little older, a little wiser, and a little smarter from season to season, in this case, movie to movie. That winning formula is what makes Scream matter. It's what makes Scream set apart because it's not the most thrilling kills. It's not the most 
um, you know, you know, inventive uh, bad guy of all time, because you even kind of know going in, the rule is it's going to be somebody they know, and it's probably going to be more than one person. Usually, that's usually how it goes. So you know a lot going in. There's not a ton of mystery, but what 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 brings people back over and over again, and the conversations that I'll have with horror fanatics outside of this podcast, even, is about the characters. And we've said it a million times on this podcast, whether it's a franchise or just a single one-off horror movie. If you give a damn about the characters, you become invested in the horror. You become invested in their stakes. You care whether they live or die. Now, something that really like stood out to me as I, as I watched this movie with really fresh eyes, brand new, is that for a sequel, boy, they brought out the big guns. Who isn't in this movie? <laughs> Like everybody's in this movie. There were so many stars of the 90s and early 2000s in this movie. Uh, like I, I, I texted you, I was like, Sarah Michelle Gellar is in this movie. Well, okay, and, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And here's the thing. Well, what's interesting about that is, is when you look at the timeline when this came out in 96, which means it was getting filmed in early 96, like or 97, excuse me, 97. They, they released it in December. It was filming in early 97 because the Scream, Scream, the original Scream had just come out in December of the previous year. Right. Um, a lot of these people in this movie were on the cusp of stardom. You know, even Nev right. Campbell, like at that point, she was still in Party of Five. Like they did... At this point during filming, you notice a lot of Sydney scenes are at night because she couldn't film during the day because she was filming Party of Five at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. So, and, and you know, Courtney Cox was, I think at that point, Friends had been on for like a year. You know what I mean? Like, I think it was right. 96 when Friends, like 95 or 96. So, yeah, a couple of years, you know what I mean? Been on for a couple of years. I mean, it was big. I remember when Friends was big. But, yeah, like, Friends that was, was she was still a TV, but she was still a TV star. And back then, unlike now, TV stars were treated differently than movie stars, Patrick. You and I both know this. Now it's a lot mm -hmm. different. Like, everyone holds, you know, Brian Cranston in high revere, and we don't give a fuck that, you know, he's not winning it. He didn't win an Oscar. He won an Emmy for Walt, playing Walter White in Breaking Bad. We don't care. He's, he's a star. Back yeah. then, though, TV was like a little second rate. Like you were a little, yeah. you know, kind of a little second rate citizen. Movie stars <laughs> were the big ones. So at this point, Courtney Cox is still a movie star. David Arquette still very much, you know, very, you know, nobody for the most part. Nev Campbell still in Party of Five. Joshua Jackson makes a, a cameo. That yeah. connection is because of Kevin Williamson. He created Dawson's Creek. I don't know if you yeah. knew that or not. Kevin Williamson wrote and created Dawson's Creek. So the teen drama you're talking about baked right in because he's the guy who made Dawson and Pacey and all them. Mm -hmm. um, Joshua Jackson, of course, is in Dawson's Creek. So that's the connection there. Sarah Michelle Geller at that point, you know, Buffy, I don't know if you remember this. Like, I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Hate the guy who created it. But I love <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Love Sarah Michelle Geller. I have adored her for years. But even then, like, Buffy wasn't a huge hit. Like Buffy wasn't this massive hit that like everyone blew it. It was a show that really took off after it got canceled or after it ended on. Oh, on I didn't the, know that. No, yeah. I'm not a big Buffy. Guy. Yeah. So these are all like, it's really, it's a weird microcosm of like really star, like big stars who became big stars. Like they were on the mm -hmm. cusp of it at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right, right from the, right from the get go in this movie. And then all these like small roles, like even the, the two sorority sisters, it's like, okay, it's, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Rebecca Por Gayhart, who, Rebecca was, uh, who Day was and Portia de Rossi. And I didn't even realize it was Portia de Rossi. She was so young. I didn't recognize her as Portia de Rossi until I until I looked at the uh, uh, credits later. And I was like, holy shit, it's also Portia de Rossi's also in this. And then you got Laurie Metcalf, who who does play like 
or pretends to play this reporter who's trying to like get her her own story going and of course it turns out she's billy loomis's mom that's the great twist oh, that's the great look, reason to have laurie metcalf who had been on roseanne for years and had been a very well established tv actor at that point point. and let me throw this out there real quick i, I don't I, for some reason thought they overlap more buffy the vampire slayer didn't start till 97 so this is the same year the scream came out the but that sarah michelle geller got her first really big starring role so she wasn't sarah michelle geller at that point she was sarah michelle geller but she wasn't buffy she was just she hadn't been that really yet so right yeah she probably had smaller roles on on teen dramas and i think she was on a she was in a soap opera growing up i know that yeah and then you get tori spelling who was on 90210 luke wilson's in this movie who plays billy loomis in (laughs) stab which is hilarious the tori spelling connection is great because if you remember in the original screen when they said they're you know they're going to make a movie out of this yeah and he says who do you think would play you and he's like i see you as a young meg ryan she's like i probably get tori spelling and then they get Tori Spelling in the same, which I, yeah. Heather Graham, Heather Graham Heather is in Graham. the opening scene. Heather Graham plays Casey. Yeah. So, I mean, it is, it's a, it's a, yeah, Jerry O'Connell, of course, plays Derek, the boyfriend and t- a young yeah. Timothy Oliphant in yeah. here. <laughs> I was like, well, shit, you know, like, like Timothy Oliphant must've been 38 in this movie because he's like <laughs> 16 hour or whatever. I was like, how old is Timothy Oliphant playing a college student? But it, but it, it just the point is like, everybody in the cast kind of mattered like yeah. even if even if at the time they were relatively unknown or on the cusp um they were all chosen for their skill they all on they all clearly mo- most of these people went on to do a, a ton of stuff um and so it just it just shows in the quality of cast the quality of story it's all there now it's not to say i love this movie damon now i know you came out of you got you got you got to go see your sequel scream 2 in the theater you came out satisfied i wasn't like in love with this movie i'm not going to say that much because i think the first one is very good like i think the height there there's incredibly high standards we're going to talk about sequels in a minute here too there's an incredibly high standard with scream the original scream just did something that all these other slashers kind of missed out on which is what we just talked about making characters you care about the second scream while I I do enjoy the structure, I think it, it flowed very naturally into the idea of okay, well, Sydney got out of you know this this crazy situation alive, and so she's now she's moving on to uh, to college. That, that part of it makes sense. The setting is great. It's the college setting is perfect as the sequel setting, um, and it's interesting. I think that that um, that that Sydney Prescott is is going to school for drama for acting. Yeah, because boy, oh boy, is this movie melodramatic. You gotta admit, after watching it for the podcast, this movie is like a damn Shakespeare play. It's so dramatic. <laughs> well, it is, but also what I enjoy about that, at least in my aspect, is is because you know when you've like everything from the first film amps up for the second film when it's happening to them again, like it does turn very melodramatic. I'll fully, I'll fully agree there, but I think that's kind of the tone of the movie. And you know, I listen. I I think that. You know, I think that this film here's here's maybe here's what I'll say, and I'll be completely deadly honest about this. Obviously, I like Scream Two, and I it sounds like from from the sound of things, I like it more than you, and that's okay. One thing I will say that I've complimented Scream on, and I don't want to get off subject too much here, but one thing I've complimented Scream on, and yes, we do live in a little bit different era where you know some studios are willing to invest in horror in a way that other studios weren't back in the eighties. But Scream has been such a consistent performer 
that like every sequel after the first one I've enjoyed to some level. I know Scream 3 gets a lot of flack. A lot of fans don't like that one. I actually like Scream 3. Maybe I'm the weirdo. And then I went back and rewatched Scream 4 um, a couple years ago when I when the new Scream was just getting made. I was like, ooh, I want to revisit Scream. And I hadn't watched it in years. And I sat down and watched Scream 4 again. And I remember when I watched Scream 4 in the theaters, I was like, yeah, it's pretty good. You know, all right, it is good. And I, you know, I didn't really care too much. I didn't really think about it much after that. But then I, when I rewatched it, I was like, wow, this is actually way better than I remember it being. Like, this might be my favorite Scream sequel past the first one. But my point being, what I'm getting at here with the whole sequel thing, is that Scream has been so consistent. Even Scream 5, which we discussed last year, and I found flaws in that movie, and I still have mm-hmm. flaws in that movie. But it's still pretty good. And I think that's oh, yeah. why that's why I hold Scream in such high regard is because even when they're not amazing, I wouldn't necessarily call Scream 2 amazing. What I would call Scream 2 is consistent, mm-hmm. same tone, characters you care about. Like you said, that's a huge part of it, a huge, huge factor in why so many of the yeah. Nightmare and Friday the 13th films just fall apart because you don't give a shit about the characters at all. Like You don't care they're getting killed. All you're there right. for is to watch Freddy or Jason kill people. Um, and while that does hold value, you and I would agree, oh, there's yes. still, but there's, like I said, it raises the, it raises the, well, you know, that's why we love Freddy versus Jason. The character development so much better in that film. Mm-hmm. Um, the character development was consistent and, and the mystery was good. It wasn't a, you know, it wasn't like a ridiculous ending, like in terms of like the revelation that like, you know, Billy Loomis is actually alive and he's come back from the dead. Oh my God. Right. You know? So I think that <laughs> he's that, not a, he's not a ghost of his uh, secret illegitimate daughter that we didn't know about. Yeah. Oh wait, that's scream five. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they're consistent and even if they're not great they're always pretty good and i know that sounds like i'm setting an awfully low bar for scream 2 and all the <laughs> other sequels it's not though because i want to rewatch scream 2 i want to rewatch scream 3 scream 4 i've rewatched scream 5 several times it's a film that i like and it's a it's a film that i enjoy it's a film that i rewatch it's a film that still has beats that always get me every time whether it's a laugh or a or a, a good scare or you know a good kill whatever it is and it's it's consistent, and I think that you know I know it's a weird reason to say why it raises the bar for the entire franchise, but it does because even when Nightmare on Elm Street, I can easily pick out three of those that I would rather never watch again. And oh, I don't, don't you know Friday the Thirteenth? I'm sure you would say the same thing. Halloween, David Gordon Green, Burn is what I say to you. Um, <laughs> There's every other franchise that goes beyond like one or two films, you know, that, you know, they eventually to be completely honest and sorry for the language, they shit the bed. They all do. Yeah. A lot Scream of them do. doesn't scream is consistently at worst. Scream is oh, it's pretty good. I know that sounds like a weird company. Again, we had issues with scream five. We absolutely did, but we yeah. didn't walk. We didn't walk away from that one. Be like, Oh my God, what a, just a, you know, the yeah, way we did Halloween ends or Halloween kills. Like we didn't walk out of the theater being like, <laughs> Oh my God. Like, like, I never imagined that at Halloween when, with Halloween kills, uh, we were confused. I did not imagine we'd get <laughs> even more confused with Halloween yeah, ends. But, like, so scream doesn't do that. And you know why it doesn't do that? And and this this is gonna sound like a backhanded compliment, but it's not. Is is because Scream puts horror on the back burner in favor of story. Yes. And so what you have is this continuing saga. Is what I was talking about earlier. Like the idea of like basically it's a new season, same cast, 
new new uh, new challenges, you know, uh, you know, and 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 shadows from the past coming to light. That's basically what every ep- episode of Scream is. Every every new sequel is a new episode of their lives. So it is going to be better and more consistent just on its foundations. So even when you're like, because I'll say, I like the kills way better in the original Scream. I actually prefer them more. I think they were a little more violent. I think they were a little more like gory and kind of horror related because that's kind of what I, my, my preference, but was I like, Oh wow, this scream two really sucks. Cause it wasn't, it didn't have those crazy kills. Like in the first one. No, like it doesn't because ultimately you're there to see the story. You see, you're, you're there to see how story, uh, uh Sydney Prescott's story and, and Gail's story unfolds. Basically, you know, they are kind of basically the two main pillars of the entire franchise. You want to see how their story unfolds. And in this one, I think, what do you say? The B story is sort of this weird thing where, you know, Gail obviously wrote a book about the Woodsboro murders it turned into a movie. Gail's kind of become a pseudo celebrity, but she's still a reporter. And, you know, now murders are popping up again right around Sydney. All of a sudden, the murders are, are surrounding Sydney again. So, like, you know, the stakes are raised yet again. And the the wrench this time, I would say, for, for me, was uh, the return of Cotton. Cotton, uh, you know, uh, Gail wants to sort of create this new um sensationalism around reuniting Sydney Prescott and Cotton. Cotton was the guy that she accused of murdering her mom, right? I'm getting yeah, that correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're trying to get them together to create a new story, a new piece of drama. And it's very it's actually very reflective of the times. I think at at, at this time in the late 90s, we were uh, fascinated with true crime in a really weird way. And we, there was a lot of sit-down interviews. They used to, I remember Barbara Walters, I think, had a sit-down with like Jeffrey Dahmer. If so, it wasn't yeah. Barbara Walters, it oh, was I one remember, of those. And I remember they did a big one with Manson too, where they had like, it was yeah. a freaking primetime event, like sit down yeah. with Charles Manson. Oh yeah. Yeah. These were things that sold, you know? So, it, so the, the themes of the movie were of the times and even the theme of like, well, are movies creating violence? Like that was a oh, big deal. That was a huge. huge deal at the time. And the matrix hadn't even come out yet. And I don't even want to get into what that, what happened with that when the matrix came out, something very tragic happened and they, they kind of linked it to the matrix. That was 1999, but there was already this talk of like, you know, movies creating violence and all that stuff. So you had the, the, the underlying B story was Sydney and cotton. Um, and like, and, and I don't know, like they, they maybe were trying to manipulate the idea of like, could cotton be the killer? Like now could he actually be the killer? Right. And yeah. I was like, ah, that doesn't really make sense. But they, they, they peppered him in just enough to make it all make sense. And he actually turns around and becomes the hero in the end. He helps, he helps Sydney save the day, which is nice. I actually liked the way they wrapped that up. That's a great Kevin Williamson wrap up, like a good sort of drama, like this drama and this tension. And is he, or is he not bad? And then in the end, it turns out, yes, uh, like he, he's, he's, he's there for good, right? Like you can root for cotton, which I kind of wanted. I was like, I please, please, please don't make him a villain some, some which, way. And they didn't, they, they didn't I, go the lazy way. Can I compliment real quick here? The, the original scream that came out in 96, when they showed that one little, I mean, two second cutaway of a guy getting put into a police car. And it was Liev Schreiber, Schreiber. How do you want to pronounce how, how, mm-hmm. how, how Is it Schreiber or Schreiber? Liev Schreiber is how I've always okay, heard Liev Schreiber. Um, that little two second clip, it actually is Liev Schreiber. It always was him. It wasn't like they yeah. just, you know, and then he comes back and now Liev Schreiber is like an iconic actor and kind yeah. like, 
how like how insanely like lucky were they that like because you know normally in those situations it would be some extra they would just hire a model because he doesn't have any speaking lines or anything like there's nothing they're doing to like actually turn him into a part of the film he literally is just a guy getting put in a cop car who has a similar haircut to billy loomis that you know that you know you can know but that's it and they got Liam freaking Schreiber. How crazy is yeah. that? Like, the, and it carried forward. He is such a great part of the second film. And then again, because when you talk about like who's gone on to have the most iconic role, you could argue Liam Schreiber has gone on to have some of the most like, Out of iconic that cast. He yeah. might be the biggest name. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's crazy. Him and so, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but it's crazy. Uh, the luck of that. I'm sorry, I had to bring that up. I was just like, how no. insane is that? He's in two se- a little two second cutaway and scream, and then he actually comes back and he's like a real actor. It's crazy. And it's it's great to I think bring him back because it it sort of it sort of keeps us in Sydney's past, which is you know like you know the big reveal uh, and we we said it earlier is is Laurie Metcalf's character is Billy Loomis's mom and she's planned this whole thing she's she's out for revenge against Sydney but it was nice to have Cotton there as sort of a reminder of what had happened it was keeping it fresh yeah. it was keeping the wound fresh so that way when the reveal came around and it was Laurie Metcalf's plan all along with Timothy Oliphant which by the way I want to get to that in just a second um, it felt earned. You know what I mean? That, that's an that's an important thing in a story arc is that, OK, yeah, we 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 were still stuck in her past and she's trying to kind of pull away from it. She doesn't want to get do this um, interview with Cotton. She's she wants to let go of all that. She wants to end, like let go of her past or well, her past doesn't want to let go of her and her past is coming for her. That's cool drama on any level, whether the execution was a little melodramatic or for me, it was a little too melodramatic. It was still solid storytelling. I couldn't like, I couldn't, I couldn't complain about it just because the style wasn't, wasn't my particular style that I wanted. It was very of the times, very nineties, very, very nineties drama, young adult drama. So it, it did everything right. And I probably would have absolutely loved this movie had I gone in the theater and seen it. You know, and, and this is it speaks once again to the consistency of Kevin Williamson's writing at this time, because even though and listen, I love it. And I understand a lot of people don't. And that's fine. But like he did a movie called The Faculty, which was like an alien invasion horror film. And once again, the character development is great. Now, do you strike? Do you get lucky that once again, you get a lot of great actors who end up going on to do big things after that movie? You know, at the time, Josh Hartnett was a bit of a heartthrob, but he wasn't a big star. But then you get people who end up going on to be, you know, the the what's the the Lord of the Rings kid or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. They end up going on to have huge careers. But one thing about that movie is these characters, you learn to like the characters. You learn to like them and care about them. And you may root for some and not others but you care about them and that's what he does again that's what he's always done in scream that's what this and to their credit and and when the scream five came out and i hope it carries forward into scream six is once again they they kept that formula like they Mm -hmm. didn't go away from that formula because they realize even though ghostface is the star as in the killer the characters are really what sell your movie. And again, you yes. don't care. You don't care who Ghostface is killing unless you know these people. A brilliant technique, by the way, that I want to compliment them on, which starts with the first film, of course. So the first film gets a lot of attention for the opening kill with Casey Becker being Drew Barrymore. And Drew Barrymore at the time was the biggest star in that movie by a wide margin. Everyone talks about that. And it's, it is. It's an iconic opening scene. But one thing that they failed to mention, and one thing that I love about that, and they carried it forward with this with Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett, is that even though you're getting to know these characters for about four minutes, give or take, three, four minutes, you still care about them. Mm -hmm. Casey's conversation with the killer, 
the conversation in that moment, you get to know she's kind of goofy and charming. And then you really feel bad for her. She gets terrified over the phone when the t- killer is tormenting her in this film, you get a pair of college students who look like they're 35, but neither here nor there, uh, Omar Epps and, and Jada Pinkett. And they're again, they're addressing cinema of that time. They're talking about like mm-hmm. how the black characters always get killed in horror films. And yeah, she doesn't like horror films. She so she's like, kind of making that clear. And she's mocking them in a lot of ways. Like when they, when they, when they, she hangs up on the killer, she says, hang up the phone and star 69 his ass. Like, <laughs> They attack it in a way that in those moments, and then like when she goes out to get popcorn, and you hear the girls behind her talking in line. They're like, I can't go back in. This really happened to people. Like, this is a real story, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. Just in that little four minute vignette with Omar and, and then the playfulness of when he scares her jumping out of the closet, you know, and that whole thing. He's like, let's go see Sandra Bullock. In that four minute clip of those characters who we never see again, obviously, they killed right at the beginning, and we never learn anything else about them. They don't, they're not connected. They were literally killed because of their names in this film to recreate the murders in, in Woodsboro, the names. Mm-hmm. That's all that mattered. Um, we still liked them, we still cared that they died. Mm-hmm. That's the brilliance of this. Even the Sarah Michelle Geller character in this film, Cece, she's in two scenes. She's yes. in one, which is the film study scene, which perfectly sets up why Mickey chose to kill her because she keeps challenging him in <laughs> film class. She's the one who kind of mocks him for the whole sequel thing that she kind of mocks his choices. Well, now we know why she gets killed. That's not because she was just a random girl. He wanted to kill her because she challenged yeah, but her. Her name was also Casey, right? It was, it was, but yeah. that's why I'm saying like, it's a good way to, when you segue right. why Connect he chose them, yeah. it. Yeah. Um, her kill. We get to know when, like her when she's on the phone and she thinks it's her drunk boyfriend. We learn her her boyfriend's an asshole. We all kind of feel for her, right? Like in that moment, she's we learn that she's uh, that she's the the sober uh, den mother for yeah, the night or whatever sister. they call it. Yeah, the sober sister. The yeah, little, exactly. That just that little detail. The mm-hmm. drunk boyfriends. I mean, what a bri- like. I know it sounds stupid. What a brilliant bit of screenwriting when she's like, "Oh, Ted, you sound loaded. This isn't Ted." And then. You realize, like, this girl's probably been mistreated by her drunk asshole boyfriend, her other sorority sister who comes mm-hmm. out and kind of verifies that. You immediately have sympathy for her. You feel bad for her. You don't know her. We don't know anything. She has no connection to any other character in this movie. But when she dies, when Ghostface stabs her and chucks her over the, the balcony and she falls to her death, we're all kind of like, damn. You know, Mm -hmm. and that's what the brilliance of Scream is that they introduce you to characters, even in little three minutes, three minute scenes. You still care enough about them that when they die, it has an impact. And that is, to me, the real brilliance of this franchise. And it carries forward into Scream 2, obviously. No, it absolutely does. This is this is a very easy lesson in efficient character building. Like both Scream One and Two for sure. I mean, I I saw I watched Scream Four last year, right before Scream Six, uh, Scream Five, but uh, so I don't I, I can't remember it like solidly, and I don't remember Scream Three solidly. But I know that the first two have this great ability to build character efficiently and quickly, and it's a lesson for anybody. Now, now the style you the style you can kind of choose and pick and choose any kind of style you want. You don't necessarily need to do young adult drama, but you can look to these movies to see how to develop your characters efficiently and quickly. They only give two hours to give you enough, and it's an ensemble cast. So you're talking about, you know, on on a, a Friday the 13th movie, has at least six, seven, eight people in it. Well, a screen movie has just about as many main characters, about seven to eight main characters, and you get to know them all enough to give a shit about whether they live or die. 
that's the lesson. That's what makes these movies interesting and like worthy to talk about. They do that differently. They do, and they do it better than all the rest do. So, you know, even for myself, like I would probably, if I was ever going to do an ensemble slasher, I would start by watching these two screen movies for sure, because I want to be able for my audience to connect with my characters so they will give a damn when they die. Yeah, and we've t- how many times on the show, Patrick, have we Countless. talked about that? We even movies we like. We'll just mm-hmm. say the one the one flaw is we just didn't care about the characters. You know, we mm-hmm. didn't care about the death or we flat out in some movies root for them to die, which is yeah, really that, good. which is val- that's a valid way to do it, too. <laughs> yeah, like, but you just I mean, want to see these motherfuckers die. That's yeah, another thing. But that's but, but again, it's not in like they developed them. We just really hate them. And we want us. We're not you know, we're just ready for them to go. Um, but, yeah, that's the brilliance of this. And like I said, not every and again, not all horror films are created equal. Every horror film is going to be a little bit different. And some of them are not going to require this level of storytelling in terms of character development but a slasher which is you know again very generically is you know, they're all similar in some way fashion or form it's an ensemble cast and a killer starts knocking them off i mean that's slasher 101 um a huge mistake that the slashers of the 80s and others have sacrilege to say is they got so focused on trying to make fun creative killers that they stopped creating fun creative casts and characters mm-hmm. and not to say that like every friday the 13th and or nightmare on elm street and or halloween is brilliant but at least a few of those films they do they do accomplish that they yes you know my i i would i think it's fair to say every one of my favorite friday the 13th films has a li- little element of that right like i like yes. part two no, i like part four and part character. seven like they're all have good compelling characters at least in some level even if it's not the whole cast there's at least like one or two people in there that you mm-hmm. kind of grow to enjoy and like that those are my favorite ones the ones where i don't like it as much and i would say the same thing for number on street is when i don't give a shit about the characters i don't care who lives and who dies and yeah mm-hmm. i love freddy krueger you know i'm okay freddy's great but there's still i still gotta care why he's killing the people he's killing i just i don't show mm-hmm. up just simply to watch him slash people jason's a little different just because jason gets so creative with his kills um but yeah but again my favorite friday the the 13th are the ones with a little bit better characters the best friday the 13th are the ones with good characters they are even like i i stand by part seven we're eventually going to talk about it I, i seem to bring it up every other show but the reason why is that our main character, Tina, has a real story. And I really the like reason part why, seven. I think I told that? you that. I think I told you that. I really like part seven now. I think I told you that, right? You've watched you've watched, I watched it, recently? it recently. I watched it. They had a Friday the thirteenth marathon on uh Showtime or something. So I recorded all of them and I started nice. picking through and I watched part seven. I was like, you know what, Patrick's right. This is a really awesome film. Yeah, I mean it's, it ain't perfect. <laughs> and and no. a lot of those movies from the eighties and nineties weren't. But what what Seven had and what Scream has in spades is a character you want to latch onto and make sure they get out alive. Now, what I liked and another character now, obviously, you know, Sidney Prescott is is kind of the central focus of Scream. But Gail now Gail was a lot more interesting this time around. Maybe I'll maybe I'll save what I want to talk about Gail for a little bit later. Um, But anyway, across the board, I think we've hammered this home. The Scream franchise does something better than any of the other ones, and that's character development. So you end up giving a shit about these characters. Now, here's one thing. I don't know if it's a gripe as so much, or maybe I was just confused, but help me out here. So Gail's storyline is that she's going to try and figure this one out too. 
You know, now she's wrapped up in it. You know, she's she happens to be back on the scene. She's trying to get uh, Sydney and Cotton to to come together. But these murders happen. So now she's got to kind of make it all make sense. She's got to kind of wrestle with the idea that maybe she caused some of this. Um, and her and Dewey sort of team up. This is when you first kind of get the idea that maybe they're going to get together. But they team up. And uh, and when they do their snooping, they come across the tapes. Help me out with this, Damon when they're watching these tapes and they start to figure out that the killer was filming things, it's very clearly Timothy Oliphant's character who was, uh, what's his name? Mickey, Mickey, Mickey. It's very clearly Mickey's camera, but I guess they didn't know that. No, because when they, we know it as the audience, right? So so at that point I was made, it was made very clear to me that Mickey was one of the killers. If you pay close attention and it's not super obvious. There's two scenes in particular where it's where it comes up. The first scene is when all the college students are together and Gail Weathers is doing her press conference with the chief of police. And we see Timothy Oliphant bust out the camcorder and he starts recording. And then and camcorder and, and on then, the shoulder. And then later and then later in the film, when they're all at lunch, he says, Do you think she would do sit down and do an interview with me? And he's holding the camcorder. Now, if you're a very astute movie fan, and again, we gotta remember the audience we're playing to here. They're all trying to figure out the killer, things like that. I'm sure, you know, there's people who figured that out. But I would have I would also assume there's a vast majority who just didn't really think about it that way until that moment. And then when you see the camera, you you might put two and two together because they don't they don't bludgeon you over the head with it, but it's pretty obvious. If you see it, but again, oh, to me, it was like a giant siren. But going for off, like, there's and, the killer. But for Gail and Dewey, they didn't because they'd never they, been they around Mickey. Didn't. Yeah, they yeah. didn't. They'd never been around Mickey. They're not friends with Mickey. Like the only time yeah. that his name is mentioned is when Dewey, when Dewey and Randy are in the Baskin Robbins having an ice cream and talking about who the killers are. And the second person Randy identifies is Mickey, the freaky Tarantino film student. Yeah. Randy knew Randy knows the rules of the sequel. Like he, he pegged, he pegged Billy Loomis in the first one. Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah. So, so really, I mean, it does make sense that, uh, that Dewey and Gail would not have known that that was Mickey, but I was like, wow, they're really showing me that it's Mickey. But the cool thing about about that is, is, you know, it's Mickey, but why? And it's not until the bigger reveal later in the film, that you actually understand why. And also who was pulling the strings. Yeah, the, the the payoff of it is all fine, but it was it was one of those things where I was like, ah, maybe I could have used a, like from that like a great technique to use. And here I am. Here's my segment where I tell you know horror icons how to how to do things. <laughs> I, I would have told Kevin Williamson like, okay, now that you've revealed to the audience, you've made it as clear as you can that it's Mickey. Like now, every time Mickey's in a shot, make him make his presence more menacing because you know something the characters don't. That creates tension, that creates dread, all of that stuff. And I feel like that was missing. This is also just a massive cast and there's a lot of people to juggle. So it was sort of like, hey, I'll, I'll give you this clue. If you pick up on it, cool, because later on we'll reveal the whole Mickey showdown. And then we're really going to reveal who's pulling the streams behind all of that. But it would have been nice to kind of have more scenes with Mickey and like him and somebody alone in a room and you're like, shit, get out of the room. Cause Mickey's one of the fucking killers. Yeah. I would have, I personally would have liked to see something like that. But I did enjoy the, I did enjoy when you go back and rewatch the film again and you watch Mickey and you figure it out because like the scene after the party where Sarah Michelle Geller's character gets killed and Derek being Jerry O'Connell gets stabbed, his arm gets sliced. Sydney's sitting out on the couch and Mickey comes and sits down next to her. And he's like, how you doing? 
And she's just like, you know, he's like, I knew this would happen. He's like, we're all here for you, Sid. And then like, they're talking first, he calls her Sid, which is very reminiscent of what Stu Mocker always called her in the first one. Always called her Sid, never Sidney. And mm-hmm. two, he said he immediately, he's the one who raises doubt about Derek. He's like, why would he go back in there? Doesn't he know it doesn't pay to be a hero in the nineties? He immediately plants that seed of doubt in Sidney's head that it's her boyfriend again after what happened with right. Billy Loomis. It's brilliant that he does that. And it's not until the end that you realize he, and he even tries to play it through the end until he kills Derek, that he's like, he's basically psychologically fucking with Sydney in a bad way, mm-hmm. even in that moment. Cause he plants that seed of doubt. When you go back and watch him and you see it, you're like, Oh, okay. Now I start to see like how like twisted this dude really was. No, definitely, definitely. But that was pre-finding the video. Yeah, absolutely. So we didn't really have that. I would have loved to have seen a scene after finding the video, like almost like the next scene, the transition scene. Yeah. Because because Gail and and, and Dewey would have been completely oblivious, but coming off of that scene right into a scene with Mickey and you know, you know, someone else, or maybe it's even Mickey and Sydney in a room alone together. And like the audience being like, fuck, get out of the room, get out of the room. He's a fucking killer. Like I would have loved a moment like that. That would have been fun. All right. Let's talk about categories. We got a lot to talk about Mm -hmm. in this movie. So let's get into categories. Let's kick things off as we always do here on the show with best performance. And I will say real quick, I know I say this about a lot of films, but I'm going to say it again here, Patrick. Again, we understand that like going back on this film, we look at the cast. We're like, holy crap. Like they had Leah Schreiber. As yeah. a throwaway from the first when he comes back and he's the second one, he's an iconic actor. And again, they really did strike gold because, as we mentioned earlier, Sarah Michelle Geller wasn't a star, really. Joshua Jackson wasn't really a star. They all became stars, but to get those kind of actors early in their careers and get them in a movie like this, that's amazing. As I always talk about with Nightmare on Elm Street 3, like how lucky do you get Patricia Arquette and Lawrence Fishburne in a low-budget sequel horror movie well, guess what? You just got them before they were famous, and they're both still really good. Um, yeah. So who is your best performance in Scream 2? My best performance in a sea of ultra melodramatic performances was Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers. And I was not expecting to pick her. I almost went with Sydney. Like, I, I was I was really enjoying Sydney Prescott's character this time around, so I thought I might give it to Nev Campbell. But when it was all said and done, I really enjoyed the nuance of what Courtney Cox had to do. I, call me crazy. This might be her best performance of all time. Like of all her performances that she's ever done. I, 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 I'm not, I don't follow Courtney Cox's career very heavily and I never watched friends or anything like that. So if, you know, if there's Courtney Cox fans out there that are like screaming, you didn't see, well, like, yes, I did not see it. You're right. <laughs> but the character of Gail is so uh, complex in this movie like so wisely created as a complex character. Cause when you meet her again, she's, she's enjoying the, the fruits of, of this book that she wrote, which is sort of exploitative, right? She wrote a book on these murders. Now, nobody liked her over in Woodsboro in the first place. And then she turns around after everybody gets killed, gets killed, writes a book about it. The book becomes a movie. So, you know, Gail kind of becomes this celebrity off of this tragedy and she's exploiting it. She definitely is. So when she shows up, and she shows up with a very specific plan, which is, ooh, you know what'll be great is next. I'll get Sydney and Cotton together, and that'll be interesting. Well, you know, you sort of hate her when you start. It's like, fuck, like once again, fucking Gail Weathers, what an asshole. Like, just, just a grade A asshole. Like, it, it makes so much sense to start with her that way. But as the movie continues to escalate, Gail's character becomes that much more complex. 
she does have to look inward as a character and go, I think I'm guilty of a lot of this. I think a lot of this blood is on my hands, actually. And then she kind of turns from, well, I'm here to get the scoop to, I'm here to try and save the day. And I'm going to try and save the day with the least likely person, which would be uh, Dewey, you know, who who I, I wrote in the book, he was a bumbling, you know, doofus of a, <laughs> uh, of a, of a police officer. She didn't even respect him as a police officer. Well, she grew there. And she grows and continues to grow. And then she even comes to the rescue of, of Sydney at one point. She fails, but she tries. So I was like, well, shit, like, if all I ever want in a movie is for a character to start one way and end another, that's what Gail Weathers is in this movie. And it, and it took Courtney Cox, she's, and, and the reason she's my best performance and not my favorite character is because a lot of the characters in this movie were really playing it up. It was really Dawson's Creek. It was really, it was really a little too dramatic for my personal taste. Yeah. So I liked, I liked the subtleness of her character where she started out real bitchy and kind of hard nosed and cutthroat and she evolved as it went on and it was a subtle evolution. So I just had to give it to Courtney Cox. Yeah. She is really good in this film. And also to your point, I actually do watch friends. I've always loved friends. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond anything else, Courtney Cox is known as a comedic actress. She does comedies. She's not really known for her right. drama roles. And this is, really her only true that i know about like big drama role like she's not meant to be comedic relief in this movie that's dewey that's 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 david arquette he's the comic relief in these movies he's kind of goofy and you know he says funny things and he's a little you know whatever he's a barney fifish as she calls him in the book (laughs) yeah Um, barney fifish he's very much that like that he is she's not she's not meant to be the comic relief so it's fun to see her kind of stretch her legs in these movies a little bit and she is she's really good and she's great in this movie um, and I really enjoyed her, um, for my, this one kills me because I want to say best performance and favorite character are the same, but I won't go there. I, I could, I could, but I'm going to go in a different route. Best performance. I'm actually going to give in a very minor way. Cause she's not in the movie a lot, but Lori Gilbert, I really like, she's a great actress. I think we all know that she's been, I think nominated for Academy Awards. She's won Emmys. She's an incredible actress. We all know this. Um, but at this point, much like you Courtney mean Laurie Ke- Metcalf, Laurie Metcalf, I almost said Laurie yeah, Gilbert. You said, Laurie, you said Laurie Gilbert. Yeah, Laurie, okay. Laurie, Laurie Metcalf. Metcalf. Sorry, excuse me, Laurie Metcalf. Yeah, there, that's the other one from from Roseanne. Am I forgetting? Am I correct? No, Laurie Metcalf is. That's no, but the, the one who from. plays Darlene, that's Laurie Gilbert, isn't it? Am I mistaken? Is it? That? Oh yeah. shit, I don't know. That's probably why. Anyways, Laurie Metcalf. Excuse me, I'm sorry, Laurie Metcalf. Um, incredible actress. We already knew she was good, but again, much at this point, she was known for Roseanne. Like she wasn't known as like a dramatic. Now she's gone on. She was in a lady bird or whatever other movie she's in. Yeah. Um, great lady bird. Yeah. She's great. But, but in this film, she's the kind of annoying reporter and local. And, you know, she has that immediate confrontation with, with, uh, Gail at the beginning when she says you're, you know, your, your compliments are both, you know, obvious and whatever. And she like kind of brushes her off and she's just an annoying reporter. You don't, she's, she's a, a, a an actress enough in that moment that, you know, she's important, but you're not, she's like, she's been a, a, a supporting character her entire yeah. career. So you don't quite put her in like, she could be the killer kind of mode. You know what I mean? Like, we're like, but cause this cast is so filled, as you said, like Sarah Michelle Geller, Joshua Jackson, all these characters are kind of like, okay, well, any of them could be the killer. And she's but of all the people, she was probably the most established at that time. Yeah. And she, she's just really good. And, and she doesn't give anything away. Like she even much like mm-hmm. Mickey plants that seed of doubt. 
she actually says in that one scene where she's just like, well, I'm just thinking that if the killer is trying to replicate Woodsboro, that they could be from Woodsboro. She's from Mm -hmm. Woodsboro. She was giving you that clue. And then when she finally gets revealed at the end, she goes completely unhinged and she looks like a psychotic mother, (laughs) much like Billy Loomis did. And she does a great that that again. That's we, again when I, I keep going back to Liev Schreiber, but same thing. Like you luck out and getting an actress who's not known for that kind of role at that point. She's a comedic actress. Mm-hmm. She gets put in that, and not to be fair, there are some dramatic moments in Roseanne. I grew up watching Roseanne, the show. Yeah, I did she too. was she was great, and she did have some dramatic moments in that show. So mm-hmm. I don't want to discount her and say she wasn't like a real good. She was, but this was like her her time to just go unhinged, and she does it like in just that little three minute scene there at the end. She's really good and really terrifying when her eyes get wide. And she really turns on Sydney and she's like, you killed my boy. I'm like, oh, shit. Like, you really yeah. feel it in that moment that this woman is completely off her rocker. You nailed it. Um, uh, Roseanne is a great example. Like in, in that in that show, she plays Roseanne's sister, if you don't know. And, um, you know, they're they're all blue collar people. She she was actually a really funny kind of goofy character in that show. But she was also sort of a moral compass. Like when I think when any of the characters were wrestling with something, they came to her character and were like, you know, she, she could kind of lay it out for them in a way that made more sense. She, she she tended to be that kind of character. So it was smart casting on the part of uh, of, of Wes Craven to go. Let's get Lori, Lori Metcalf because she she has that ability to be warm and welcoming. And when you meet her and, and she's up against Gail, Gail's is very slick, you know, kind of city looking type person. And then this this small town reporter who looks sort of mousy and meek next to her and acts that way next to her and acts sort of like, or, you know, even though she's like clearly older than her, she she used she she looks at uh, at Gail as a, as a superior, as somebody that has higher station than her. She's selling all of that. All her acting is selling all of those things. So I really was thrown because I'd forgotten that this was the movie where you learn that it's it's Billy Loomis's mom. So I'm coming into it completely blind and I'm looking at her. I'm going, God, they have Laurie Metcalf in this role. It's interesting because like she's kind of a big deal, especially in this cast. She's one of the bigger names, but she's playing this smaller role is just kind of a it's kind of a bit part. Well, the bit part really pays off in the end. It turns out she was there all along pulling all the strings. And you're right. When she makes that turn, she's maniacal. She's absolutely insane and unhinged. That's performance shit. Uh, it's so good. She's so good. And like, even in that moment, like towards the end, when, when she finally reveals herself to Gail before she comes out of the, the, the door on the stage and Gail's has Gail at gunpoint when she walks up and Gail's at the phone and she's like, what's wrong? And she's like, the killer. I found the killer. It's cotton fucking weary. And Lori Lori Metcalf goes cotton weary. And then the scene just cuts. And it's because then that's obviously when she pulls the gun and like takes her into the, it's, it's just really, she's just really, really, really good at her job um mm-hmm. to throw you off the scent because i mean yeah you're, i'm like you like you you're like it's Lori, like we know laurie metcalf but she's not you know she doesn't do anything in this film to get like you say mickey gets given away she does not obviously no one would have guessed the whole billy loomis's mother thing because right. you know we, i mean you putting two and two together you wouldn't think about that um because we never met her in the first film we just heard her name we just heard she was you know she left she left home and she broke up with her husband because he cheated on her um, but that whole thing, just that big reveal at the end, and then she just goes so unhinged. And even in that moment when she has Sydney at knife point and Cotton's got the gun on, and he's and she screams at him, and she's like, "He, she put you in prison for a year." She's so like driven in that moment. You're like, "Damn!" And that 
again goes back to the cotton character where you're kind of like damn maybe he will fucking kill sydney in this moment like maybe yeah maybe he is gonna do it um speaking to that point let's talk about favorite character um i introduced i, I spoiled your character there but let's talk about your favorite character yeah my, my favorite character was cotton and it was actually a hard pick this time around because there were a ton of characters there were so many characters to choose from so i had to go based on story and i liked cotton's story i didn't necessarily like love the character because i thought it was weird how like how obsessed he was this was something that never actually sat right with me in the movie how obsessed he was with actually just trying to get the big story like i knew he wanted redemption he wanted his name cleared and the best way to do that was to have a sit down with uh sydney prescott where she kind of you know absolved him of all this and like met like because he wants to get back to having a normal life but the way he went about it was odd well he, he doesn't like, he doesn't want a normal life he wants to be a celebrity he wants to be a star that's why he keeps talking about you know all, there's a time and a place and indeed a price for this story he wants to get paid that's he's like very 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 capitalistic in this movie in that regard so it's like he's clearing his name but he's also like yeah but can i get paid for clearing well, my yeah, name? yeah he wants something out of it yeah. right but yeah. it was just it was odd you know it was like i i didn't i didn't particularly love like like the character himself but i do love i do i loved the turn and i love where it ended up like he was he was obsessed with um you know trying to like you're saying to to get the notoriety but when it all came down to it you know he he did the right thing and i liked that as a character it's like of course like he was somebody who was wronged you know, you know, it wasn't it wasn't Sydney's fault. This is best. This was as best she could do. She assumed that he had killed her mom, uh, but he was wronged, and he he lost a year of his life because of that. And he's he's trying to get it back, and then by the end, he sort of gets he he gets it all back by kind of being heroic in the moment, which is good. And then at the very end, which is nice, everybody swarms Sydney because you know she survived yet another attack from Woodsboro killers, and she turns and says talk to cotton he's the hero of the day and i love that you know that like that was, it was just great to kind of throw it all back to him and go yeah i don't it doesn't need to be about me sydney like let, let it be about cotton for now because he, he, you know he's gone through enough well and there's also you talk about the character arc with courtney cox's character with gail weathers i think i think cotton goes undergoes the same thing because you got to put yourself in his shoes. He was wrongly accused. And also to, to, to be fair, like, you know, this was set up by Billy Loomis. They wore his jacket. Like they set him right. up to be, you know, they set him up to take the fall for, for Maureen Prescott's murder. Um, he goes to prison for a year and you wonder like, what is that? Like he was an innocent man. Like he was legitimately yeah. an innocent man. What would it do? There's obviously thousands of cases of innocent people getting sent to prison. I'm not going to get on that soapbox, but I'm just saying to like, imagine that in his role, you've been accused of a brutal, murder right you've been convicted of a brutal murder which means you're not just going to like the white collar prison with tennis course or yeah. anything you're going to like you know the hole at san quentin all right you're going to the worst of the worst as yeah. an innocent man you know you didn't do this and you got to go for a year you're in prison where everyone's calling you a killer and you're the you know and you're in ultimately woodsboro is supposed to be kind of a small town so everyone there hates you everyone you've ever known or grown up with hates you now and then a year later you get exonerated and yeah you want a little bit of money for your time you're like shit i deserve it i just spent a year mm -hmm. in prison for something i didn't do um and so the movie comes out and he's doing he's basically playing gale in a way he's trying to cash in on his experience and in those moments though you start to wonder like is this dude actually all the way there like because there's that again yeah. that great scene in the hallway when he confronts sydney in the library 
And he's trying to convince her to do the Diane Sawyer interview and she brushes him off and he has that great line. It's not my favorite line, but I'll say it. He's like, he's like, ah, of course, lovable, fucked up Sydney Prescott. And they come and arrest him. You start wondering. And that's, yeah. and even in, they tell you in the movie, Sydney has, or excuse me, Cor, uh, Cotton has that conversation with Gail Weather. He's like, you're not suddenly questioning the, uh, you know, you're not suddenly questioning the lead character in your book, are you, Gail? Like, you know, she's like, uh, what, what are you doing, Cotton? Like, it's a race. They sell it so well that yeah. he could be the killer and he might be a little crazy. And after a year spent in prison being an innocent man, you know what? Wouldn't necessarily blame him. Yeah, he has motive. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's well, it's, it's well orchestrated. Um, My favorite character, this is where I went back and forth on making it my favorite performance as well. It was a little too easy to go with favorite performance or best performance. My favorite character should be no shocker is Randy Meeks. I love Randy. (laughs) He builds on his character from the first film and really becomes uh, an increased version of that character. The second film, a little more confidence. He's not quite the geeky friend as much anymore. A little more confident in, in, in who he is, but He's the film geek, and that's me. I'm the film geek. You're the film yeah. geek. We relate mm-hmm. to the film geek. Um, so I just love it. And he has, you know, he has the best dialogue. Of course, Randy is the character who dies, who to this day, Scream 6 is coming out, and people are still bitching about Randy dying. Um, but to me, that again, we go back to the whole character development. When you make a character in he's in one film and the second one he dies, guess what? That's horror movies. Like that's exactly how horror movies are supposed to work. That's how it works. Um, Six films later, four films later, there's still people bitching. Like, they shouldn't have killed Randy. <laughs> Randy shouldn't have died. That's how much people care about this character. Randy is, is just the, the scene where he's doing the sequel conversation in film class. He does the weird Australian accent on the way out when Sydney's questioning. He's like, it would have been a good one, too. <laughs> he does the accent. Yeah, I was like, um, why is he doing that he's accent? Just, he's just being a goof. And, and just the whole thing with him. Uh, I just love that character. And again, if we're going to pick out who would we be in a movie, yeah, I would be Randy. Yeah, we would definitely be like a, t- a team of Randy's because <laughs> we're the because we're the film geeks there. I, you know, I, I, I try to funnel everything in my life through movies in, in that way. So I, I do relate to Randy. Yeah. So I love Randy. So that's that's my guy. That's my favorite character. And again, it's his final. It's his farewell. So and it's the only thing I've ever enjoyed that Jamie Kennedy's done. That's also fair. That's also that's also part of the reason why I almost went best performance because I think this is one of like two movies where I'm like I like Jamie Kennedy in this movie. Um, let's talk about best gore um, because there's gore and also I want to mention one thing you mentioned earlier about how in a lot of ways the first scream has better kills and I actually would agree with you. Um, here's one thing that was weird and this was a, a bit of the time in '97 when they were getting this to come out. From what I've read online and in interviews, Wes Craven had to do like eight different edits to get this film down to R rated. Now, when you watch this film today, it's pretty tame. Oh yeah. Very. But back in 96, going into 97, they actually had to do edits to get it to this point of being an R rating, which should, again, I, I want to get, I'm, I'm not giving it a pass on like, cause it's not that gory and, and it's not really like when they say it's carnage candy, it's not really that. But no. also, I think that's a, they're a product of the time because when you watch this now, you're like, this is a pretty tame horror film by gore standards. They couldn't make it any gorier. The standards back then were just different. The censor said, you need to make eight edits. Apparently, the, the one big one was Sarah Michelle Gellar's character, Cece, when she gets chucked over, was way more brutal, apparently. And mm-hmm. they're like, nope, you're not putting that in there. And so that's one of the ones they had to cut. Yeah, no, we we mentioned uh, uh, Friday the 13th Part 7 earlier, notoriously butchered by censors. 
And and that footage is lost. It's not even out there anymore, yeah. which really sucks. But that movie was ultra brutal. It probably would have been the best Friday 13th of all time had all of that incredible like gore and kills. They went way over the top with all that stuff. All that stuff got chucked because this, these were just the times. And I think that was 87 or something. So that's, you know, a full 10 years before this. Um, they were they were the censors were definitely a lot more. There were no Terrifier 2s coming out in theaters. And now now we're at Terrifier 2 where that's still an R-rated movie. And that's like, you know, it's (laughs) it's an R-rated movie. Yeah, Yeah, But yeah, so I want to mention, and not to get too, I just want to mention that favorite gore because this isn't really a gory movie. No. But they wanted it to be gorier. They did. They tried. And the censors were like, no, you know, no, you can't do that. Yeah, I would have wanted gore. But instead, I mean, I, I got one good gore moment. Which was, um, you know, when when Ghostface takes takes the girls for a ride in the cop car, and the cop is trying to, you know, uh, stop him as best he can. He, he's on the hood, and 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 Ghostface crashes into a construction site or something, and the cop is like impaled through the side of his face, and that was that was about the best gore in the whole movie. Yeah, that was a good one, um, especially because they did get a couple of close ups in there when Sydney's mm-hmm. crawling out of the car. They get pretty close to the to the gore, and that that's probably that probably is the most extreme and best score but i'm gonna go with my best score just because i thought the imagery was really iconic and it's randy's death scene in the van when they mm-hmm. open the door and you see his face covered in blood it's a really creepy well yeah. shot uh scene where they just do the zoom in and you just see his face covered in like spider webs of blood mm-hmm. it's a really cool death scene because he's just again he's laid out dead blood all over him and just that look in his eye, like his eyes are still open, which makes it 10 times creepier. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, that it's was just about that, the only other one. It's that cascade of like spider web of blood over the face that really gets me. It's a really well done, like really shot, well, really well shot scene. Yeah, yeah, that definitely would have been my other pick. Let's talk about best kill because there are kills. There are plenty of kills in this movie. I, I, you know, I'm actually, I'm skipping one here. We're going to go best scare. Sorry, we're going, we're going to kill later. Uh, best scare. Um, it's a horror movie. Got to have best scare. What's your best scare? Uh, my best scare is when uh, Sydney Prescott early on in the movie um, is on the phone with Ghostface. And she says, oh, yeah, well, show me your face. And then she turns around. He's right fucking there. He's like right on top of her. And I was like, hey, that's pretty fucking good. Like you're just you weren't ready for him to be right in the room with her. So that was my favorite scare in the movie. Yeah, that was a really well done one. And uh, and, and a well orchestrated one with like a classic jump scare in that moment when he's like, well, he's like, she's like, show your face. And he's like, OK, <laughs> he's like right yeah. there. Yeah, that <laughs> very, very reminiscent of the first stream that the good scream mm-hmm. in her house when when she first gets attacked in her house. That's a really good effective scare in that one as well for me you know it's weird that i'm going to say this is my best scare because it's not the traditional sense of scare for like a good jump scare one that actually made me jump because nothing in this film really makes me jump but that's not really the intention of that. you know i'm not I'm, I'm not the audience to get jumped i love this film but i'm not the one who's going to jump at these scares but my favorite scare honestly is the chase scene between Ghostface and Cece, Sarah Michelle Gellar's character. Oh, yeah. Just a really good old school horror film chase scene where she's going up the stairs, trying to throw things at him. And you know, she's early in the film. You know, she ain't making it. Like, you know, she ain't going to survive this. And that to me always makes it a little scarier. And also, as I mentioned earlier, even that little three minute vignette where we get to know her, you kind of feel for her. You're kind of like, oh, yeah, get away. You, and you, and you know, she ain't making it. You know, you're 40 minutes into the movie. There's no way she's surviving this. She's going to die. But just that classic up the stairs chase scene. I just love that. It's a really good, intense moment. Yeah, it is. It's very, you're right. Very classic structure. Um, 
to that point, let's talk about best line, or should I say best lines? Because uh, you and I both have a couple for this one. So uh, do you want to set up? I, I did them in order based on your email. So the first one is from earlier in the movie. So I'll just say you're yeah. not spoiling it. So what's your first favorite line, Patrick? <laughs> My first favorite line um, it was, was when... Um, Dewey and Gail reunite for the first time. And it's contentious, right? He's kind of pissed about how she portrayed him in the book. She's surprised that he's even there. And she's a little annoyed that he's there, frankly. Um, and they just, they, they're having a little exchange. And the end of this exchange was just so damn 90s. Because you got to remember, now Gail is no longer just the, the local reporter. She's now a star. So she looks different. She's got a new haircut. She's got some streaks going on in it. She's wearing new clothes. She definitely looks... Like she's, she's kind of a, what do they call, what do they call it now? She's got, she's done a glow up, you know, she's definitely looking more, uh, uh, you know, it, you know, she's just, she's just more done up than she used to be. And, uh, and, <laughs> and what do he said here? If you're from the nineties, you will understand why this is funny, but it just struck me so damn funny. I'm sorry. I don't know what else to say. No, I'm the one that's sorry. I misjudged you. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have some oozing to do. One more thing. Nice streaks. Wow. One more thing. Nice streaks. <laughs> nice streaks. I mean, that's just, if you know anything about the 90s, streaks were all the fucking rage. And that's what, that's exactly what, what Gail Weathers was rocking at the moment. Can I mention real quick, I want to bring this up in the podcast anyway, it's just a perfect segue to this conversation real quick. So you notice the music in that scene. Mm -hmm. You heard it right there. Famously, this was not the original score for this film. The original, so when, when films get done for test audiences, for those that don't know, they do take these films out a lot of times for test audiences, studio screenings, long before the film comes out, they're trying to gauge people's interest in the film and like, do they like this? Do they not like this? And the reason you never hear about it is because people sign non-disclosure agreements where they say anything, they'll get their asses sued. So no one ever actually admits that they've been to a test screening until after the film comes out. Um, they do this for the purpose of like, does it work? Does this work? Does this scare work? Does this joke work? Whatever. Um, in the early part of this film, when they did this, Marco Beltrami, who did the original score to the original Scream film, would just been hired to do this. Now, again, remember, this is all happening super fast. Production on Scream 2 went into effect like very soon after Scream 1 came out. Like it was within yeah. like very. So Marco Beltrami was still working on the score. The film was already pretty much done. He's still working on the score, but they needed to put a score in the film for the test screening. So what they did was is they found a film from a year or two earlier from uh, from Broken Arrow by the great uh, John, um, uh, why am I forgetting John his name? Wu, right? John Woo, right? John Woo. And, and, uh, and, and the score is by Hans Zimmer, who's very famous. He did the Dark Knight score. Uh, he's an Oscar winner. He's done a ton of great scores. Yeah. Um, and they put that in there. And then Marco Beltrami writes an entire score for the entire film, including this scene and several others. It's basically the Dewey and, and Gale theme. They play it whenever they're together. It's that song, uh, that, that, that score. Um, they played it. The, the audiences loved it. The studio execs loved it. So they just left it in the movie. And apparently Hans Zimmer heard about it, had no idea this happened because he doesn't own the music. The studio owns the music. Yeah. 
So they just sold it. He had no idea he was in Scream 2, that his score was in Scream 2 for Broken Arrow. It just happens to be in Scream 2, and they just left it in. <laughs> hey, what are you guys doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's my shit. Yeah, he, but, he went out on Friday night, and he heard his score by accident. Well, also, feel bad for Marco Beltrami. He wrote a score, and, and the rest of the movie is his score. Like, everything right. outside of these early scenes is his score. But they're just like, oh, yeah, by the way, we just like said, fuck your script, fuck your score for like two scenes and put in Hans Zimmer's from a movie about a dude who steals nuclear weapons in the middle of the desert. If you haven't seen Broken Arrow. Um, yeah. We're talking about a weird, like weird way to <laughs> twist the score and use it for a horror film. It worked. All right. Set up your second uh, best line. And this was a little longer. Yeah, this is pretty much not just a line. It's basically a whole scene, and it's a great scene where um, Randy and it's Dewey, right? Yes. Randy and Dewey sit together, and they try to figure out uh, who the killer might be. It's just that great. It's what you want out of the screen movie, which is the movie-style breakdown of uh, who the killer might be and who the, who the prime suspects might be. Uh, I just and and the rules and of course that's so important the rules of the horror movie and the possible prime suspects. The way I see it, someone's out to make a sequel. You know, cash in on all the movie murder hoopla. So it's our job to observe the rules of the sequel. Number one, the body count is always bigger. Number two, the death scenes are always much more elaborate. More blood, more gore, carnage, candy. Your core audience just expects it. And number three. If you want your sequel to become a franchise, never, ever... How do we find the killer, Randy? That's what I want to know. Oh, let's look at the suspects. There's Derek, the obvious boyfriend. Hello, Billy Loomis. The guy's pre-madness, pity, me, surface wound, conveniently missed every major vein and artery. So you think it's Derek? Not so fast. Let's assume the killer, or Urs, has a half a brain. He's not a Nick at Night rerun type of guy. He wants to break some new ground. Right? Right. So forget the boyfriend. It's tired. Who else do we got? There's... Mickey, the freaky Tarantino film student. But if he's a suspect, so am I. So let's move on. Well, let's not move on. Maybe you are a suspect. Well, if I'm a suspect, you're a suspect. Do you have a point? Okay. Let's move on to... Hallie. Sid's roommate? Mm-hmm. Serial killers are typically white males. That's why it's perfect. It's sort of against the rules, but not really. Mrs. Voorhees was a terrific serial killer, and there's always room for Candyman's daughter. She's sweet. She's deadly. She's bad for your teeth. Come on, Randy. These kids are your friends. Who do you think's the killer? How about Gail Weathers? Gail? A killer? Why not? She is vicious enough. She's an opportunist. Isn't it conceivable she's planning her next book? That's what reporters do, Dewey. They stage the news. No, Gail's a lot of things, but Gail's not a killer. Listen, just because you're sweet on her. No, I'm not. Please, this is me talking, Randy. The unrequited love slave of Sidney Prescott. I know all about obsession. And pain. I know all about obsession. And pain. And pain. (laughs) Uh, that whole scene is great and you're, you're thinking I just listened to like two minutes of the movie you did because it's just so good yeah. you can't cut any of that out of there and by the way what is the third thing I'm glad you brought that up because I've been curious about that for 25 years they still have never said and I'm always like if you ever, if you want your if you sequel to become a franchise never ever and then he cuts them off I'm like what was the third rule 
<laughs> maybe, the, maybe the third rule is don't cut them off. And and it's funny, like it, it, even in the middle when they're talking about Mickey, they dismiss they dismiss Mickey way too quickly. Yeah, because it would put the it would put the spotlight on them. It turns out, yeah, that was that was but the guy. Randy, they but Randy was the, he's the first one who named him though. He said Derek, yeah. and he's like, oh, we gotta forget about Derek. The Billy Loomis has already been done. What about this? And he nailed it, nailed it right away yeah. because he nailed Billy in the first one too. He's the one throughout the whole movie. He's like Billy's the killer. And you know he's right. So in the in Scream Six, we're gonna need to, to uh, pay close attention to Jasmine Savoy Brown's character because she's the horror expert. Yeah. So she's likely going to reveal the killer very quickly. Pay attention. You never know. You never know. Uh-huh. Um, my first favorite line is a Randy line, and this is the one that absolutely cracks me up. And I say it in normal everyday life because it cracks me up the way he insults Billy and Stu over the phone with the killer during the scene in the, in the courtyard at the university, when Gail and Dewey are out running, thinking they're going to find the killer. And Randy's job is to keep the killer busy on the phone. He kind of antagonize him. And this is a great, when you finally realize it's, it's Billy's mom later in the film, she actually says, you know, Billy, or he says, uh, Randy insulted my boy. And I got a little knife happy. That's one of my other favorite <laughs> lines. I didn't put it in my favorite lines, but when she says that she's like, Randy insulted my boy. I got a little knife happy and I'm like, oh, okay, good callback. Now you know why Randy died, because he fucked mm-hmm. with Billy. So this is my this is my first favorite line. Where's your innovation? Huh? Why copycat two high school loser ass dickheads? Stu was a pussy ass wet rag. And Billy Loomis, Billy Loomis, what the fuck? Jesus. What a rat looking, homer repressed mama's boy. Why not set your goals higher, huh? You wanna be one of the big boys? Huh? Manson, Bundy, OJ. That's OJ. <laughs> Manson, Bundy, OJ. Um, I just love that line when he's like, Stu was a pussy ass wet rag. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. And uh, and the Billy Loomis, but he says he's, 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 he was a he was a rat looking home repressed mama's boy. And guess what? He was a mama's boy. He and his mama came back boy. to avenge him. Yes. Oh, um, was he? Yeah, so there you go. Uh, my second favorite line also involves Randy, and it's the scene from film class. If I haven't made it abundantly clear on this podcast, because we don't do every movie, we just do horror movies. Probably my favorite weird subgenre of movie is movies about making movies. Um, I love those films. I love, you know, I love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I love Babylon this past year. I love movies about the movie industry. I have a weird, like, fetish for those kind of movies. So this scene of them just talking about movie sequels in film class is like, you know, it's just like, you know, it's film porn for me. Like, I love this conversation. So here's my other one. Are you suggesting that someone's trying to make a real-life sequel? Stab 2? Who'd want to do that? Sequels suck. No, no. Come on, man. Oh, please, please. By definition alone, they're inferior films. It's bullshit generalization. Many sequels have surpassed their original. Oh, yeah? Name one. Yeah. Aliens. Far better than the first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's no accounting for taste. Thank you, Ridley Scott rules. Name another. No. <laughs> Aliens is a classic, okay? Get away from her, you bitch. I believe the line is stay away from her, you bitch. It's film class, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Whatever, you know what I mean. Another. T2. Mm. You've got a hard on for Cameron. Big one. Yeah. <laughs> but wait a second. The first Terminator is historical. Yeah. Sarah Connor. Yes. Wait, 
So as I teased earlier, Sarah Michelle Gellar's character challenges Mickey a couple of times, setting up her eventual murder in there. And uh, Randy says, you know, not only the sequel sucks, he says that sequels ruin the horror genre. It's such a meta film. And that's what yeah. that's what Scream has done throughout the entire franchise to be a meta film. Um, but it's just I love that that they, they mock the sequel that they're making. Uh, and the conversation is great. And by the way. Outside of House 2, the second story, I'm not going to get on that one. Um, <laughs> all the other sequels they name are actually really damn good sequels. Yeah, that's true. It's, it poked all types of holes in Randy's argument that sequels suck. I'm like, oh, actually, a lot of sequels are really good. But he said superior than the original, and that's where the argument comes in, because Alien and Aliens is one we've not... We will eventually review the Alien series, because I do consider it is horror. It's it's sci-fi yeah, horror, but it's horror. Yeah. Alien, I would say, is more horror than sci-fi, weirdly. Like, that's a scarier movie. Mm-hmm. But I personally like Aliens a bit more. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Aliens. Great movie. I just, I, I, I've, I've loved Aliens since I was a kid. And we're the reverse. You love Aliens, but Alien is, like, maybe one of your favorite films ever. I think Aliens my favorite film ever. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure of it, but I also fucking love Aliens. Like, yeah. there's no question. Like, Aliens is fucking rad. And They're I'm apples the sa- and oranges. And I'm the yeah. same way with Terminator. I love Terminator 2. Everyone, if you like Terminator, Terminator 2 is amazing. But I love the original Terminator. I think Terminator is probably great. my favorite. I like Terminator 1 better, but that doesn't mean I don't love So it's great. Godfather Part 2 is a good pull, though, because I actually do like Godfather 2 better than the original. So As most people do. Yeah, well, so... As we move away from favorite line, Patrick, we're going to have a little conversation here with our next topic, which is name a horror sequel that is better than the original, not equal to better than the original. We're not going to go through a whole list here. We don't have time for that. We're going to pick one film. Now, I'll just pick one. I'm going to do this. I'm also going to spoil this one thing. Everyone that's listening to this podcast knows I love Nightmare on Elm Street. If you look behind me, you can see the bottom of the poster. If you're on YouTube, the bottom of that poster, that is the Dream Warriors poster that I have framed on my wall. Dream Warriors is my favorite Never Elm Street film, but I'm not using that one. I just want to throw that out there. I'm not using the Never Elm Street. I picked a different one. So, Patrick, to you, name a horror sequel better than the original. And I am going to go to my number one franchise, which is Friday the 13th, and say that it's actually Friday the 13th Part 4, is to me superior to the original. Now, I like the original. It's great. It's original. It's highly rewatchable, very inventive, cool idea, cool twist on the end. But part four is everything you want in a Friday the 13th movie. It's got it all. It's got great kills. It's got great gore, great design. Um, It's got Jason in the mask. It's got great characters that you latch onto and stories that you can get into. Um, it, it, It really just has it all. It's it's kind of everything I wanted the Friday, the, th- the original Friday the 13th to be. It just wasn't there yet. And it finally got there in part four. I love part four. I think it's been well documented. Yeah. That's probably my favorite Friday the 13th film. I love part four and I don't disagree with you on that at all. Um, my favorite sequel. This one's a little more obvious when you think about it, but it, it qualifies the devil's rejects. Ooh, good pull, Danny. Yeah. Damn now, you for I, now, pulling I that like, one. I like House of a Thousand Corpses. I, I do. I like that movie. But Devil's Rejects, I think I've said on this show, is probably my favorite horror film of all time. And I yeah. love that film. And it is so brilliant. And it is so good. And it does qualify as superior to the original. And it's yes. way, way better than the third one, which is not a good film. <laughs> We're um, talking about that. <laughs> yeah. But The Devil's Rejects, that would be my, my sequel that's better than the original. 
That's a great call. And it almost is an alien aliens discussion because uh, to me, like, uh, House of a Thousand Corpses is like a tried and true slasher, horror, psycho, whatever, Rob Zombie brain thing. Whereas Devil's Rejects is sort of a revenge movie. It's something totally different. It's like a road movie. It's it's They're like two different things. Um, but no question about it. It is superior. It's just because I think the Devil's Rejects is probably on my all time list. You know, like I don't know where it sits on my all time list of all movies. But it's up there and House of a Thousand Corpses is not not the not to say there's anything wrong with House of a Thousand Corpses, but Devil's Rejects is far superior. Yep. So that's my pull. And I would agree. I, I like that. I like I like House of a Thousand Corpses very much. But Devil's Rejects is just it's and, and also to its credit, one reason. And, you know, it's funny when you think about it, even though there are sequels, a big theme here is that when you like when you get to Terminator 2, it's a much bigger action set piece. Obviously, they had a lot more money and CGI yeah. and they were all that. But uh, when you think about it, like they are sequels, but they also change how they do it. Aliens is is an action movie. Yeah, it's an action movie as much as it's sci-fi and horror. You know what I mean? Um, they made it. They made it similar but different. And I think you can say that about Devil's Rejects. Like it, it is a sequel. It has a lot of the same characters, but it feels different. I would even again. I mean, obviously, Friday the third, Friday the Thirteenth is completely different because Jason wasn't in the first one. Um, but that works also. So again, I, I think that's also a little takeaway here is that your sequels can be uh, similar, like they do in Scream, where all the films are very, you know, very similar to each other. But you can also make them different. Just make them good different, an action film different, or uh, in this case, like I said, Devil's Rejects. Devil's Rejects is like a Western horror film almost. Yeah. Like, they're on the yeah, dusty. It's like it changes subgenres. Yeah, like yeah it exactly. Else. Yeah. yeah, and I would I would argue, and obviously Friday the Thirteenth qualifies as well. Like, yeah, they're both slashers, but the way they are slashers are totally different. Mm-hmm. So, all right, let's talk about best. Uh, what's the next one? Where am I at? Best kill. Best kill. Let's talk about best kill. Um, who is your best kill in Scream Two? My best kill, I called it uh, Buffy Gets Brutalized. Now, of course, that her name isn't Buffy in, in this movie. Her name is Cece, uh, played by Sarah Michelle Gellar, who played Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, when Ghostface finally decides to take out their frustration on Cece, boy, oh boy, does she get it. I mean, she gets attacked. I mean, viciously attacked. I have to imagine that when you said that the the censors said pull this scene back it's brutal enough on its own like like ghostface gets in there attacking grabbing crashing stabbing and then with all that all that terrible you know violence that is that is thrust upon cc in the very end just hurled off the top of a building i was like damn like killed her and then killed her extra it's a very brutal scene when you really think about it he chucks her through a window stabs her a bunch of times and then just mm. chucks her over the freaking balcony like yeah. it's a really brutal scene super brutal scene something that would make jason Voorhees very proud yeah it's it's a great it's a great it's a fantastic kill um that probably to be honest is probably my favorite kill as well but i'm gonna go in a different direction just because when i rewatched it i appreciated this kill a little bit more and it's the opening kill with jada pinkett smith's character or jada pinkett yeah, that's a good time. one too um just the the twist of her, you know, killing the boyfriend and coming back with his coat on. She finds the glo- the the blood and she's kind of confused, doesn't know what's happening. He stabs her in the stomach. 
The whole crowd's losing their mind because it's the same moment when Casey gets killed in the stab movie. So everyone's freaking out. Everyone's going nuts. It's a college crowd. They're all losing their minds. And he's literally stabbing her to death in front of a theater of 300 people. And no one notices. One girl gets blood on her and she kind of looks at her hand like, what's this? And we just, and he's brutally stabbing this girl. He stabs her like 20 times. Oh yeah. And then she crawls on stage and like, you see her blood coming out of her mouth and she dies. Really cool kill. And also very iconic at the times when, you know, we had a tendency to just kind of look the other way. That was mm-hmm. a big part of that early, like, mid-90s, 97. That was a big part of, like, you know, do the right thing. Like, you know, you see something, say something. Like, in those days, it was just like, see something, turn your head. Because people just didn't yeah. pay attention. He could, You could murder a person in the movie theater and no one noticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that is one of the better kills in the movie. Good pull. Yeah. Let's talk about two of our favorite new categories, Patrick, and that is... So we already know the answer to this. The answer to this pa- this this particular um, category is remake, sequel, or leave it alone. And basically the premise is, if we had a chance to remake this movie, would we? If we had a chance to sequelize this movie, would we? Or leave it alone. Obviously, we know it's already been sequelized. We're about to go see Scream 6 in a matter of days, which is why we are reviewing Scream 2 right now. Um, here's the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose a slightly different question, though, to you for this one, Pat. We didn't plan this. I'm just kind of throwing this out there. All right. um, considering the consistency of Scream, even Part 5, which, again, we found flaws with, but also, again, to pay it the weird compliment I'm paying, it's a pretty good film. Um are you happy with Scream continuing on as sequels and franchise? Oh, oh yeah, no, I think it's I think it's um I'm, it's more than welcome because especially after seeing Scream Five, I realized okay, they are sticking to their formula. They are sticking to what makes Scream Scream. They are focusing on the characters. Sam Carpenter is an interesting character who has an interesting history. She's a great you know we talked about kind of passing the torch from Sidney Prescott to Sam. Sam's got an interesting baggage of all her own. Her dad was an infamous killer and she didn't, you know, she didn't even realize that. So she's got, she's like live or did, did she realize that? I can't remember what in the film. Did she know it in the film? She knew it. She knew it. Yeah. She knew who he was the whole time. Yeah. She knew okay. So was, she yeah. knew the whole time. So she, she carries that baggage with her. So that's very much a Sydney thing. She's carrying that with her. So, and there's of course a new ensemble. They're all still in the new sequel from screen five to screen six. Pretty much everybody gets passed over into the next sequel. The people we liked anyway. So yeah, they're doing the right thing with the sequels. They're staying focused on the characters and they seem to be upping the ante in the kills. And what I also enjoy, and I hope they never change this, and this is the biggest one, is that they're still hiring not only the same cast, but they're hiring quality filmmakers. Yeah. Yeah, the Radio Silence crew who did this, they did Ready or Not, which I really enjoyed that film. And they're hiring people who really love this, and they're not skimping on the production. They're not skimping on the script or the cast, any of that. When that happens, I'll say end it, because I don't want this to become Nightmare on Elm Street, where they get to the fifth and sixth and seventh films, and it's just bad. Um, mm-hmm. Now, did they revive it later on with, like, Freddy versus Jason or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. But I don't ever want to, I don't want Scream to ever get to the point where it's just, they're just throwing somebody in a ghost face mask out there, and it's it's a it's a slasher film i don't want that um so for now yeah i want it i have not seen part six we're about to go see part six in a matter of days if part six is at worst pretty good as i keep saying then yeah i want to see a part seven as long as they continue on because again that's what scream has done so well is they've been consistently good maybe not everyone's consistently great 
But they're like Scream Three is the one that's most like dis disliked by fans. But I would still wager ninety five percent of Scream fans would still rather watch Scream Three than the average horror film. You know what I mean? Like yeah, they're Halloween great. ends. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> uh, but you're grading it on a scale, right? Like you're grading yeah. Scream 3 on a scale of like, well, Scream 1 is amazing and Scream 2 is really, really good. And you know what I mean? And then Scream 3 comes along. Now, again, I like Scream 3. Um, but even that, it's like, yeah, it's still pretty good. And that's mm-hmm. not something you can say about most other horror franchises. You cannot say that about any film that's this deep into a franchise, five films, it's been this consistent because I would pick apart every one of them. Every single one of them has really flawed films within the first five. So yeah, I want to continue to see sequels from this franchise and I hope they do. My only wish is pay Nev Campbell what she's worth. If she wants to come back, stay tuned. I have a feeling she will come back. We will see. All right. Let's talk about uh, another category. We added recently, Patrick, can we survive this horror film? Now we didn't have this for the first scream. And I know that we're going to do it again for scream six. Cause that's an interesting one. Cause it's in New York city and you and I have both, I think spent significant time in New York city. Um, yeah. I've been there many, many times. That's probably one of the many cities times. I've been. That's probably one of the cities I've been to the most in my life is New York city. Same. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be a fun conversation about could we survive New York city um, in a slasher film. I'm, I'm going to have fun with that one. Um, But this one, college setting, by the way, in my home state of Ohio, this is the only film that takes place in Ohio. um, Could we survive Scream 2, Patrick? In in the case of Scream 2, the verdict is, oh, hell yes, I'm surviving this because I am not melodramatic like the rest of these people. But as as college Patrick, would you survive? Oh, as college Patrick, yes. Because I remember college Patrick, the minute the bell rang, my ass was out of there. Okay. <laughs> like I didn't fuck around. I wasn't sitting around trying to figure things out. I couldn't wait to leave school. I was definitely not going to sp- stand around with people who were going to like spout soliloquies and woe is me all over the place. Just on, just on a personality level, I would have had nothing to do with these people. So I would have been far away from the knives. Yeah. So I would 100% end up dead. Um, <laughs> I have no doubt about it. And here's why. I I would 100% antagonize the killer like Randy did. Mm-hmm. I I am a smart ass by nature. Um and I am I have a tendency to like say things to be funny and they're not inappropriate. I'm not saying that, but like I am the I am the guy when you're around your group of guy friends, I am the one who's like breaking everyone's balls. That I know mm-hmm. I am that dude. I joke with people. I'm never mean-spirited. I'm not. I don't ever do that. I never do that. But I like to rivet people. I like to joke with people. I'm the ball buster. You know what I mean? And so I would 100% be Randy. I'd be like, he's a pussy ass wet rag. I would want to. <laughs> and I'd be the one to get killed because I would antagonize the killer. I'd be the dumbass yeah. who like antagonizes the killer and they kill me for that for the sake of being an, an asshole. So, yes, I would die 100%. I would not make it out of Scream 2. I would be Randy. <laughs> I would get pulled in the van and stabbed like 20 times. Fair assessment. I'm honest. I'm at least I'm being honest about it, right? Like I know that would at I, least give me a reason to come back and avenge your death. I'd be like, "You killed my podcast partner. Die, yeah. die." Yeah, I was Hi, Laurie I'm, Metcalf. I've been a smartass my whole life, and trust me, I know that would eventually come back to bite me in the form of a slasher just killing me. So, uh, also, <laughs> real quick, we didn't mention this in Best Kill. By the way, you know, we we talked about like everyone when they saw the Scream Six trailer. Everyone's like, "Ghostface with a shotgun." That kind of looks weird. And like, have we forgotten the guns have played? a big role in all these films like they played a big yeah. role in the first one but the second one when mickey kills uh derek it is so brutal 
Basically, he just shoots the guy in the chest, and we see his hole in his chest just blow open. Like, we yeah, didn't yeah. mention that as, like, the brutal kill, but, like, when I go back and rewatch this film, like, for a gunshot death, which I know gunshot deaths are not traditionally good deaths in horror films, but I was like, damn, like, that was just brutal. He just shot him, his chest exploded. <laughs> see, there we go, a little tie back. They're like, no, Ghostface will use a gun. Yeah, always use guns. That's nothing new. They've yeah, been using guns nothing, since the beginning. Nothing new. But yeah, I was just like, oh man, that's like when he shoots him in the chest. <laughs> yeah, he's like, just like bang, like point blank in the chest. I was, I was like, oh, like, okay. God damn, stand by me. See you later, Jerry yeah. O'Connell. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Jerry. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's get to our last category today, which is, of course, is it scary? Uh, Patrick, I know you are a bit of a newcomer, so you did not experience this in the theater, so you weren't around during that era. And also, I was a teenager when these came out, so again, I had a different experience with these films than you did. Scream mm-hmm. Two, is it scary? I would say no. Um, and I, and it's, uh, it, this comes from the Kevin Williamson era of horror movies. And I actually went to go see most of them. I saw movies like the faculty and all that, um, during that time, you kind of didn't go there necessarily to be scared. You, you went there for the, for the drama of it all. And boy, is this a dramatic movie. I mean, the mellow, mellow, mellow dramatic movie, um, right down to the very ending where they're on the stage and she's like, She's like pulling the big like Frankenstein latches and pulling on the strings and everything. It's all just operatic. Um, so to me, I think it's it's more designed to be dramatic. And if you want to call it dramatic horror, I don't even think it's that because that, that's a whole other thing. I think it's like a Kevin Williamson thing. And um, that to me, it doesn't that doesn't ring scary, but it does ring very interesting. You do get the horror, you know, you get plenty of kills. That's all in there. The suspense of who done it, that's in there. But it doesn't, it's structured to me at least. It's not structured like a scary movie, more so dramatic movie. I agree. And I think I'm agreeing with you from our perspective, but I will say it's scary in the traditional sense of a slasher. Like for what a slasher film is, I love slasher. It's my favorite genre. And it sounds bizarre saying this, but I never get scared of slasher films. I love them. I adore them. They're my favorite genre, but I don't really get scared by by slasher films, um, which sounds bizarre to say. Um, So based on a traditional slasher film, if you get that kind of like, you know, edge of your seat, you know, chase scenes and, and jump scares. It's pretty effective. I'll say that. It's a pretty effective for what it does. It's not terrifying. There aren't a ton of jump scares, but again, the chase sequence with Sarah Michelle Geller is pretty solid. The chase scenes at the end with Gail and Dewey and standing in like the soundproof booth and you're trying not to make a peep. And there's some pretty good, you know, moments. So I'll say, yes, it is scary in that sense. Is it scary? To the 2023 audience, is it scary to you? And I know it's not, but um, for what it is, for for what it is as a slasher film, it works pretty well, I would say. Yeah, it, yeah. For me, it was just from that era where they just like they weren't out to really scare you. Like I even think like the original Scream is scarier. Yeah, it in is. General. But also, yeah. and also again, takes away again, like when they take the, cause brutality can be confirmed as part of the scariness. Yeah. They had to make eight cuts to get this down to an R rating. It bugs me. Yeah. Like, I wish we could see the real version of this. Uh, did you see, by the way, they released the un, they, they did release the, uh, the unedited version of Megan now on, uh, on, on Peacock. 
Uh, you know, I watched a little bit of it the other night, and if it was the unedited version, I saw like a little something new, yeah. and it wasn't that much. Yeah, I haven't watched the whole thing yet, but that's my point. Like, I'd love yeah. to see what they actually did before they had the eight edits to get it down to an R-rated movie. Yeah, I'd like to I'd see like what to that looks like. Because brutality can play a part. Like, again, like when you talk about, again, I know this is, again, different time, but like Terrifier 2, like it's not a traditionally scary film in, ter- in terms of like you know, whatever it's a slasher. And how do they get the slasher part of that film over so big? The brutality, that film is incredibly mm-hmm. brutal. Um, that is part of what's being scary. And I just, I would have been fast. Like that kill with Sarah Michelle Geller is already pretty good. Imagine if they could have ratcheted up a couple more notches and how terrifying that would have been, for that. you know, I'd be in for that. I'm a, yeah. I'm a, I'm a bit of a psycho in that respect. Yeah. I wish you could. I, honestly, I know this sounds weird to say this. I wish and I know you said it earlier in the film, early in the podcast, you agree. Like, I wish you had been around mm-hmm. during this time. Like, I wish we had been friends at that time. We didn't meet till many years later, but I wish we had been friends because it would have been fun to experience that because you yeah. haven't. I have. I've been around and it's, you know, out, there are new franchises spot, you know, popping up that are trying to do that. And I commend them and hope they all do well. But yeah, that's one thing I wish you would have been because, again, I think you would. I think you would have a slightly different experience. Had you seen this in theater in 97, you know what I mean? And been part of it from the beginning, you know? There'd been a nostalgia tied into it that I don't have for Scream. But but also, it's nice to be able to look at it like completely fresh and objectively. But objectively speaking, I still see the massive strengths that this franchise has. Yeah, so there you go. Scream 2, that's our episode. We're going to be back next week with Scream 6. Back-to-back Scream episodes. Uh, This is a big one. Scream 6 is going to be one of the biggest films of the year, so of course we're going to review it here on the show, so we cannot wait to talk about that. Make sure you check us out on all of your favorite podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and of course we have our our own YouTube channel now. Please, please, please go over there and subscribe. Every little bit helps us, so please go over and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're putting up new episodes every single week. I'll have this one up this week, of course, so if you do go on YouTube for your podcasts, please just search Rewind to the Living Dead. You'll find us over there. If you got questions, comments, movies you'd like us to review, I actually do have a few suggestions of movies that I've taken down notes for that we are going to try to get to uh, when we have some downtime between some of these new films uh so please keep sending us suggestions we love it uh send it to our email that is rot living dead at gmail.com that's rot living dead at gmail.com you can also hit us up on any of our social media channels just search rewind of the living dead or rewind of living dead on twitter on instagram and facebook and you can also hit us up on our personal twitter accounts i am at damon martin and you are at director patrick and damon uh before we go i want to give a quick shout out to a friend of mine a free little plug she's trying to put her short film together her name is janine pipes um and she managed to get uh, executive producer neil marshall yes that neil marshall from dog soldiers from the descent from hellboy neil marshall is executive producing her short film but she needs to raise raise funds for it um it's called footsteps and you can go to indiegogo.com and search footsteps and janine pipe and you'll probably see it um if you have a chance to maybe donate a dollar or two to to her short film um she's trying to get that off the ground i wanted to use a little bit of time to be able to say hey uh, go ahead and support some small filmmakers out there trying to do their damn thing absolutely we are film we are film uh, aficionados who want to be filmmakers and i applaud anyone 
who takes that jump into filmmaking. So absolutely go support that project uh, and find it on Indiegogo and absolutely go out there and do it. There's an, I just saw recently another, uh, another horror film was doing it through uh Kickstarter and they got funded and I'm hearing all this buzz online. So yeah, go support people. I mean, guess what? The next person might be the next Damien Leon who makes the next terrifier. You never yeah. know. So and if Neil Marshall's backing her up, Probably a good idea to jump on that horse. And Dog Soldiers and the Descent are two of my favorite all-time horror films. So that dude yeah, knows what he's doing. Yeah, she wrote a book on the do- on Dog Soldiers with Neil Marshall. So yeah, there you go. There you go. All right, folks, we're gonna be out. We're gonna get out of here now. Obviously, we want to say a big thank you, of course, to everyone that tunes in each and every week on the show. Uh, and we will be back next week to talk about Scream Six. So stay tuned for that. Enjoy seeing it in the theaters, hopefully, and rejoin us here on Rewind of the Living Dead. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you then. Peace.